0: Hey, Impact Sessioners, Andy Crow here, uh, host of the Impact Sessions podcast. Uh, do you guys like that? Impact Sessioners? <laughs> uh, probably <laughs> probably the last time i used use that. Um, but anyway, um, I'm always pumped to introduce the guests on the Impact Sessions podcast, and today is honestly no exception. Um, Baruch Jacob, who's on the podcast, um, he's working at the Auckland Council Co-Design Lab um, with TSI, and yeah, he's an innovation facilitator with a deep interest in how psychological safety enables the honest sharing of emotions and this i believe is important on a number of levels especially as innovation requires it it requires truth telling the ability to leave assumptions at the door and to call each other's blind spots out Um, i can't wait for you to hear the rest of this episode but first let's roll the intro it's been said that social enterprises are 10 times harder to build. We're not only seeking financial sustainability, but also environmental, social and cultural sustainability. It can be a minefield. There are many social innovators taking the leap and pursuing the dream. What are the tools, experiences and mindsets that drive them? Why are they doing it? And how do they stay the course? That's the job of this podcast, Impact Sessions, a podcast dedicated to unpacking the leaps of faith of social innovators and creating a resource for the next wave. I'm your host, Andy Crow. Let's get this session started.
1: Computer. Awesome. Yep. Cool.
0: Um, you mentioned your PhD. The you, <laughs> what's what's the um? This is just me getting into it. But what what's oh, yeah. your like exploration towards?
1: So, I'm basically looking at um, emotional capability in innovation teams, or innovation contexts, yeah. basically. Um, what it means to build emotional capability, what emotional capability even is. But I'm sort of looking at um, network resilience kind of model. you familiar with the idea of network resilience? It's slightly technology.
0: I think, no, I, actually, I think you might've, I might've heard it from you last, yeah. but if you want to refresh my memory, it's all good. Oh
1: yeah, so it's just the idea that, um, say, if you have a bunch of servers, for instance, connected with a cable, it's not good enough for each of the servers to be strong or completely resilient. The network itself has to be resilient. The things that connect. So the resilience sits not on each individual server but in the network of the servers coming together and also it's um, if you can technically kind of remove one server and put in another server or just add another server to it and that becomes part of the network and part of the resilient network yeah, this is slightly layman's understanding of uh, yeah. network resilience and thing. But what I'm so looking is... This...
0: So does that play into, like, um, just so I'm getting... Mm. Let's, for example, like, um, I mean, and I'm not, I don't know much about it, but, like, with blockchain being decentralized, does that make it resilient or not really?
1: I think it might make it quite resilient because it's decentralized. But, yeah. again, my understanding blockchain is really limited what i'm trying to say for instance i, I don't if you remember this last year was it um there was uh petrol a petrol line a digger oh, went through the yes, petrol yeah. line somewhere in northland and auckland like uh, auckland airport shutdown yeah yeah that's not resident man.
2: yeah
1: so i think the idea i'm sort of trying to really explore is looking at a lot of it feels to me i um, mean this is very much as a very much early inquiries but it feels to me that when we talk about resilience human resilience we talk about it as individuals Mm. you know it's like something goes wrong you andy need to be more resilient baruch you need to be more resilient but when you think about network resilience it's not about the individual it's about the network itself Uh, and resilience sits in the network and when i think of it that's very natural to a lot of our thinking i mean like in these times we've gone back to family We've gone back to close friendships, all of that. That literally, yeah. a family is literally network resilience. I yeah. think you have talked earlier about church as well. And church is literally, when it's working well, that is network resilience. Awesome. But we tend not to think about it in sort of professional and performance circles as much. At least, yeah. Again, sports think about it all the time. Yeah. You know? For them, it's that's a natural way to think about it. But again, yeah. in business, we tend not to, yeah. So that's the thing I'm trying to find out yeah.
0: more, yeah. Yeah, awesome, man. and I think, yeah, um, uh, I f- I w- yeah, I wish I had a guess at what you were gonna do, because I just, yeah, I just, you know, I mean, based on the ideas you've been putting out and then based on mm-hmm. some of the workshops I've been a part of that you've run. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just like, how could you not do that? <laughs> um, yeah, I think. I feel like, it, I feel like yeah, you've built the, right, yeah. the skills for it. Um, mm. And you've sort of, yeah, um, awesome. I mean, and one, one um, thing I was going to add was um, about the sports one. Um, and I'll find the the researchers because we uh, I feel like a bit of a like, name drop. But like um, mm-hmm. when Rory and I did our TEDx talk, mm-hmm. um, references to re- economists. And they talked about, you know, how economies can be like a football team or a basketball team.
1: Very interesting, right?
0: Um, and I'll find the... Um, yes, please. I'll find the reference. Um, but essentially, like, a basketball team. Um, mm. Actually, i can flick. Uh, it's, it's probably in the TED Talk, but um, if you haven't seen it yet, it's... Um, no, I'll go life. back and
1: revisit
0: here. Yeah. Um, innovation in Unlucky or neighborhoods or something oh. like that. Should remember the title. But, um, but essentially, like, if you're a basketball team and you have LeBron James on your team, um, I mean, at the time... Like he's missed the the NBA finals, like championship games. He's missed it once in the last ten years. Um, and so, a basketball team um, is um, a strong link sport. Like there's nothing you can do to get to keep the ball out of LeBron's hands. The way basketball is set up is that you can have a superstar. Obviously, he's got supporting yeah. players. Yeah. But yeah, you can't keep the ball out of LeBron's hands. Whereas the football mm. side of it. Is um is essentially like a weak link um, analogy as well because you know it doesn't matter how many passes you do, um, if the last pass fails before they score the goal, all of the previous work is undone. Yeah. Yep, yep. you know in oh, basketball, okay. it's one pass away from you know something yeah. like yeah, positive yeah. happening. So yeah. you can have players like you know Messi, Ronaldo, um, who yeah haven't won a, rugby, a soccer world cup despite being hands down the best players the last 15 years you know yeah, it's either it's either one of them who wins the top thing but never yeah, won yeah, a yeah. championship or never won a like rugby a soccer world cup yeah. um and so like if you're building a football team you're better off not having a messi or ronaldo um you're better off investing that money in your yeah, yeah. your like three worst players um so you build yeah well, i think to use your analogy again you build network resilience um and you get moved like there's movies like um moneyball that kind of touch <laughs> yeah, on it yeah 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 moneyball um, and i wonder if baseball is a is more like basketball mm. um yeah because it's it's reliant on moments not yeah not like collective effort mm-hmm. but anyway that's a I know how much you like metaphors. Um,
1: yeah, so. they got me thinking, bro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's actually one of the things that really led me up this whole thing. So I think when I started thinking about this stuff and kind of working on this stuff, I was thinking about psychological safety. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, the um, which, which is sort of technically defined as um, the ability to speak up. The, you feel safe enough to speak up. It's not so much safe in the sense of, oh, we never disagree and we don't fight and mm-hmm. stuff, but it's more all of us feel safe enough to speak up. But just before last year's uh, Rugby World Cup, eh? I know, I might have told you this story. So just before last year's Rugby World Cup, I was sitting at the Papa Toy, Toy Food Hub with a bunch of rugby meds. They're just like totally into the rugby and I'm just trying to keep up with the conversation. But then they started talking about this one player, and this was just before, about 10 minutes before the All Blacks were selected for Japan, before the announcement. And they're talking about this one player who was, um, they said he was really good. His running was really good. His passing was on point. His kick was actually pretty decent. Um, His teammates loved him. So he's awesome. Except they said he didn't know when to unleash the beast.
2: Yeah. Well, and
1: it's sort of that, sort of that extra aggression, you need to smash something through And then started to think about that. And it's like another problem, I mean, rugby has famously had is people not being able to leash the beast off the ground, you know, and that goes into a lot of the domestic violence statistics and stuff. It's like that inability to unleash and leash the beast. And then that's when I kind of started talking, thinking a bit broader as an emotional capability, not just about being safe but also yeah. as a performance thing. Well, yeah. yeah, not just as a protective factors thing, but also as a performance factors thing. Yeah, that and that's where I've sort of been digging into the sports literature and it is full of that stuff, man. All of that mental skills and um sort of what Gilbert inoka has been doing with the All Blacks. Um I know someone's working the Warriors. I've been put in touch with someone who's working with the All Black or uh, uh, with the Black Caps. Yeah. And i'm slightly i haven't written to her yet because i'm slightly um, intimidated (laughs) (laughs) but once i've got my understanding that that i'm going to write to her and sort of yeah and that's sort of when the phd also started to form because it's like man this is bigger than it's bigger than a work project it's something that i'm getting really really interested in.
0: yeah yeah um it's i love that you brought up psychological safety um it's probably one of the three things um, which I think all sort of interconnect and tie in. Um, and inter- yeah, um, and yeah, I know we just you know jumped in the conversation. Um, mm. you know and people listening back will be will be this will be really weird because I'll do the intro after. Um, but um, yes, yeah, so I didn't want to actually need to drop that in there, but. Um, So the three things that um, I thought would be cool to touch on, and they're all related on articles that you wrote. So the first one is around psychological safety. Oh, yeah. Um, And then also, I thought it would be awesome to walk through, I know you usually use like emotional culture there, Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm sure there's like resources that can substitute people finding, you know, a list of feelings. So I thought that would be super interesting and to walk through. Um, The other one is navigating in circles. Um, i love that story that you tell um can you guess the third one where i'm going with this
1: gardening yes ah (laughs) watermelon watermelons and butternuts. watermelons oh man dude that was so (laughs) hilarious that was so funny
0: um yeah so this is the most prepared i've been um for for a podcast but also um i think it's just so and then the bigger context is that we're at, we're in this really like weird time. Mm-hmm. Um, we have COVID nineteen. You know, in about a week, just le- under a week, we drop down to level three. And I think there'll be some like. I don't. I think it will be more psychological than the physical experience. But there'll be some mental easing that we go through. Um, but one of the things like I've been thinking about lots, and you know, I've started. Um, I've been fortunate enough to still be busy over this time. Mm. Um, Or not busy, but like have work um, and have work in the domain that I wanted to be in. Um, And the question I've been asking is like, and it's sort of been prompted by this idea of like, you know, um, essential workers and essential businesses staying open. And the question being like, what is essential? Um, Mm. And what's been interesting, like working with schools, is that there's some schools who, I say schools, there's one school I'm talking to, um, And the students are not have not like are not ready for online learning, Um, and and when you ask the question what's essential, um, is some of the you know competencies or capability to be able to you know self direct, um, self manage, have like this I have the sense of like actually self leadership, you know, Um, and so the quest like the what it opened up was that actually we, based on our current system, we're not preparing them to have some of those, like, core skills. And so what's essential now, like, for me, is because it's also big, like, in, like, so for example, like, let's say the skill of, like, self-long, lifelong learner, um, Mm -hmm. being able to self-direct, self-regulate your learning um, and your ability to, you know, take on new things. if it's imp- like it's almost like my like, I'm gonna call it my COVID nineteen test. If it can be deemed to have been vital during like COVID nineteen, that's a future focused skill. It's a skill oh, that will like nice. su- it's a skill that will serve for life. Um, if it's a skill that I can do, you know, yeah, that like enables me to be who I want, how I want to show up, and all that kind of stuff during a pandemic. it's almost like my like. I don't know what's it to test the test, um, but yeah, like it's then what is essential, like is enduring. Um, and so one of the things for me that I think why, yeah, I'm, I'm stoked that you're like starting this PhD and also that um, you've been writing a lot about, because all three of those things touch on uncertainty, yep. on on putting effort into somewhere and yep. sometimes getting a different result or... You know, and, it, and it's sort of like three, um, someone told me about the prism, you know, and about and especially about like, just looking at, you know, new ideas, and how we can iterate and develop on the same problem. Um, and I feel like these three ideas touch on three different sides of like, dealing with uncertainty, mm. and then, and then hinging on like, how we deal with the emotions of that. Yeah. So that's where my brain went yeah, and when I thought yeah, I'm going to yeah, chat yeah. with, I'm going to chat with Baruch. Um, and yeah, so, um, I'm going to jump in, um, and, 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 and see where we end up. Um, so a cool thing from your article on, on the um, psychological safety was that you did have, um, and there's a cool video and I think I'll drop that into um, the show notes. Um, I don't say that much, so that's that was quite nice to say show notes. Um, <laughs> so as a, like a, a, you know, as like a um, description of, of what you're going to talk us through. Um, and you did touch on it, but like, yeah, just again, like um, jumping into psychological safety and how you use it, how you think about it, and maybe the example from your team meetings.
1: Mm. Mm. I might have to go back to my notes now, joking. But um, so the idea of psychological safety itself, the way I understand it, and I've got to preface this by saying, I have no training in psychology. Um, I'm sort of a jack of all trades and jump from one stone to the other, depending on what, where the river's sort of going. Um, the idea of psychological safety, as I understand it, comes mostly from Amy Edmondson. And she wrote a book called um, The Fearless Organization, or Fearless Organization, so I can't remember which. She did her, Quite a bit of research on it before writing the book. So there's also a few TED Talks, I think, running around. The idea of psychological safety is literally the ability to speak up, Uh, the ability to speak up without fear of being judged, without fear of being laughed at, without fear of being shut down in any way. And it's not that there isn't argument or robust discussion or disagreement or any of that, but you can you still feel like you're safe enough to be able to speak up, and speak up to authority, you know, uh, without sort of the problems that, that can often bring. So that was that. And with my team, the team was quite interesting when we sort of started. It's, it's a bunch of people who all do their own thing and do it really, really well. Mm-hmm. Now there's the specialists at what they do. But also, what was interesting was um, in the context that we work, which is sort of sort of social innovation and trying to get the system to change um there wasn't we weren't making very much connections across I know it's like this here's a discrete piece of work and here's a discrete piece of work, and they don't really need to talk to each other. so when I started with the team, one of the things I wanted to do was create more of those connections and then sort of came across this particular tool and yeah. The Emotional Culture Deck, well, I personally love it. Um, I think the, there's been a lot of research gone into the actual emotion words that I used. So how I use it with the team is um, every Monday we meet. And also this is kind of interesting, just as aside at the moment, because at the moment we're just meeting via Zoom.
2: Yep.
1: So how that plays in, so that's quite interesting. So for a few months, basically every, morning, every Monday morning when we meet, sort of the first thing the first thing is you pick a card to talk about your emotion. It just goes around. Um, sometimes it could be a quote-unquote negative emotion, quote-unquote positive emotion. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And there's no judgment. There's no feedback. There's no solutioning, nothing. You just talk about it. And then it goes around the table. And I, I usually start it because I'm the one kind of holding that space. I usually start it. Make sure the manager of the team goes through it as well. And then once we've done that, we then pick another card to describe how you want to feel for the rest of the week. And so the psychological safety aspects of it, I mean, um, I was going to say, don't quote me on this, but it's kind of hard on video. But, <laughs> uh, but the way I understand it, right, this is my take, um, there's sort of two main things that are really, really key. One, to build psychological safety. One is to build connectedness and um i prefer the maori phenongatanga uh, so it's not just general connectedness but it's a sense of being family mm-hmm. you know how are you and i phalang what's what's the phenongatanga and the second being connectedness and the second being sort of self determination or autonomy could think of as control and again i very much prefer the maori tinorangatanga so mm-hmm. self sovereignty you are completely in charge of your own thing so the way i think the cards actually help us with with building psychological safety because it talks to both of those so one is even if i Baruch, have nothing to do with your work andy i mean we're friends like we're mm-hmm. in the same team but our work has nothing to do with each other there's not very many reasons to connect there's not very much emotional connection between us but yeah. if you and this really happened in the team someone picked up the cards and said oh my my emotion is not there on the card. I'm like, okay, what's your emotion? And he's like, existential despair. <laughs> and like, whoa, okay, talk about it. And he talked about it. And then it went around, and one of these other parts of the team was never really connected with this team member. She goes, you know what? That is my word. Too. I was going to say something else, but that's actually my word. Existential despair. And she talked about why she felt that. And what I began to see was over time, and this is not an immediate magical thing, mm-hmm. but the two of them have started talking more to each other. You know, They listen to each other in, in the team conversations. So that is one. The other thing about connecting, and that's the thing, when we connect around emotions, it's really, really basic. Yeah. And sometimes, at least with the team now, I try and push it, particularly around this COVID thing. I've been starting by saying, where's a dark place you've gone to? pick an emotion, not just any emotion, but pick the dark emotion that you've been in because you have, And you know? Go to the dark place and then you talk through it. But it does take a little bit more comfort with the, t- with the group before you can do that, always. I mean, people yeah. need to be comfortable with you. The other thing, so that's the connectedness side. The other thing around the self-determination is everybody gets the same deck of cards. So whether you're the coach like me, you whether you're a team member, whether you're the team leader, manager, you all get the same deck of cards. You know? So there's sort of that real equality in that sense. Everybody yeah. can pick their own deck of cards. You choose your deck. I mean, like my colleague wanted to talk about uh, existential um, despair, but other times it's just people just go like, oh, yep, I'm happy. You know? Or I'm grateful. Yeah. You, know? you don't have to go deep. But that's your choice. Yes. You know, yeah, yeah. It's not a choice that someone's you have the choice. And also with um at, at a more subtle level, because the words are on the card, there's a sort of this quite implicit permission to go anywhere those cards talk about. So those cards, for instance, say words like rebellious. And there's a talk about it. Yeah, you can go there. Mm-hmm. You know, in a mm-hmm. normal team meeting, you wouldn't say, Oh yeah, feeling well in team meetings i've been in at least you wouldn't necessarily say oh, i'm feeling rebellious you know or i'm feeling yeah. irritated would you say that <laughs> or i'm feeling i'm feeling unsupported mm. you know and the thing is when the cards give you the implicit permission to go there it suddenly becomes i mean there's real yeah yeah and also in the process because we do not offer feedback i mean sometimes i might catch up with a team member later to say hey just checking in you're okay Mm. but in that space it's not about giving feedback or fixing problems or solutioning or nothing it's just like oh thank you for sharing it's like a alcoholics anonymous uh, (laughs) kind of thing it's like oh thank you for sharing
0: (laughs) yeah one thing uh, that i was impacted by when i think is the first time you did it and we were part of a meeting Mm. um Looking back on it, I was just like every like I can almost like confirm everything you're saying, but I think when we did it that first time, there was already uh, part of the meeting had already occurred. Yep, yep. And up until that point, um, yeah, everyone was from what I could tell, hundred percent on board. Right? Hmm. Um and uh, I know to that point like that you were saying, like, would you say you know, X in a meeting. Would yeah, you say yeah. you feel you feel uncertain, you feel unsure? Mm-hmm. In a meeting where you're meant to be collaborating on the possibilities right. of something, yeah. right? Yeah. Um and so we do the the culture deck um exercise and emotional culture deck exercise and for me it just like it blew the lid open on mm. on um yeah just on the on the temperature of the room. Um yep, yep. you know, like I, I went in assuming pro- and this is yeah um well, it's been it's a few months now since this happened, but I could probably through that exercise say that um the the temperature I tend to read is my own
2: mm, in yeah. that
0: space um and it's then you really also use yeah. the term like holding space um and as someone who yeah is leaning into that you know that part of the work um and and and, and the thing that occurred to me too like because you're a um trying to remember your on your website um, fedabond.com, you have learning facilitator and innovation design is that right mm-hmm. yeah um, and just how like yeah how design is strategic um, and and not always and not necessarily in a like we're manipulating the path or trajectory but that we're open to and but also know that something else is going to come as a result of this there's going to be an aha, an aha moment um and it's usually through assumptions being smashed mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. to make way right for that new space that we want to get to
1: no true way that's so true there's um i saw it recently on the Six collective um page what is it they're saying it's not it's not b2b or b2c not business to business or mm. business to customer it's h2h yeah. human to human yeah. and I don't think that's new, I think other people have said it before, but that's I think if we can connect to the human level, a lot of the other things sort of we willing to forgive I mean and that's also why I really love the framing of it as fantanga. I mean if your family is anything like my family, if your family is anything like my family, it's messed it's messy
2: yeah.
1: it's not it's not simple i have I have um relatives i strongly suspect to vote for Trump you know it's like and that goes against every fiber of my being it doesn't change the fact that my family yeah you know and (laughs) that's the thing about FANA right and often at work we talk about families and communities and sort of really slightly slightly feel good terms it's like oh yeah we're family so we never fight what family did you grow up in where you never (laughs) fought in you know it's like yeah so sort of this human-to-human connection, I think, and particularly in the framing of phenomena. It's, it's like, we can completely disagree and we can, like, I think at that meeting, some people had some, when I remember, was it that one or the next one? We were talking about what what, what are you worried about?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then a lot of stuff came out that yeah. we would just never talked about before, yeah. you know? And going to that human connection space, it, it's messy. It's yeah. messy. You have to deal with the fallout yeah. of it. But at the same time, in the long term, I think that's the only way to do it.
0: And I think, yeah, what, what happened was, is that I think it's also easier to, when especially when we label those emotions as negative or positive, I, mm. you know, it can be easy to then view them as binary and right. as a linear experience. Yeah, I'm yeah. moving from a negative space into a positive space. Mm. Whereas actually, and this again, this is hindsight and thinking right now, that there wasn't a there was almost like a there was a duality. Mm. Maybe there always is. Always it. Do you know what I mean? Like right now, this like to be on like yeah, like right now, this conversation is fantastic. But I'm waiting for my three year old to come bursting through the door. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I'm like excited, I'm pumped, as present as I can be. But there's also like a part of me that's like a little bit frightened. And you know that this recording's gonna get stuffed up by a three year old like wanting me to, I don't know, (laughs) do something, you know, that I don't want to do right now. Um, And so that was another thing, I guess, yeah, Mm. like, oh man, this is, yeah, like, sort of just being aware that, and it's not that the positive stuff, and I guess the point I was trying to make is that the positive stuff were legit, but we just hadn't explored the other side. And we don't usually make space for that. And so having a tool like the culture deck and Mm. someone like yourself who could hold that space, um, Mm. yeah, like, made it made it possible mm-hmm. um awesome um i sort of wanna i'm gonna oh, i was gonna say yeah we want to change like a little bit of tech yep. and i think it's gonna illuminate another side of of like the importance well i think like yeah like i feel like the first part was like you know how do we name what we're uncertain about mm. how do we name like what's um yeah like what's you know like what's, yeah, what's yeah, yeah. there? What's yeah? What's there? What's coming up? Um, and then how do we also place it? Um, yeah. Um, and that's sort of like you know have you seen the iceberg model, where mm. um, you know above the water is our actions, below yep. the water is our feelings. And so I feel like that's what this work was. Yep. Um, work this yeah. That sort of first mm. part. Mm. And I think the next part, and um, I'm keen to talk about navigating in circles. Oh, yep. <laughs> um, and I think that's like it's a lot, it's a quite a like a, you know, overarching metaphor, but I think it's also very practical. Yep. Like, what do you do like when yep. the usual, the norm, the stuff that you can't, you don't usually see, look mm. out for, mm. um, you know, hold on to um, when they're, they're no longer there? Mm. Um, and just what's uh yeah, what's a way that we can approach that? Um, so yeah, I'm gonna pass the ball back to you. Um, Mm. yeah, Kenta, so yeah, just, oh, sorry, no, you go. I
1: was just gonna say, do I, what's the best way to do this? Do I tell the story again or?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm pretty keen on you, on you telling the story. Um, and, um, yeah, we'll, I'll pull the clip out actually for, for when we promote. Oh yeah. Yeah, we'll share this with other people, but, (laughs) um, I think it will give it, yeah, good context and then also. Um, everything i just said will make sense as well so nah, i need you, just, need you to save me
1: so the um, so the background so this was around my first time around at the tsi mm-hmm. and we have our, our resident Komatua, uh, matua Re- he does a lot of work with the uh, maramataka and stuff and i was sitting in the cafe and um, matua suddenly goes you young people and it's like i I didn't do anything anyway. But Matos was like, when you young people think about navigation, I was like, I've never thought about navigation in my life. (laughs) But uh, jokes aside. So Mato says, when you you guys think about navigation, or when we think about navigation now, we think about it going from one place to another place. So it might be curvy, you might have detours and stuff, but it's more or less straightforward. But he said, um, ancient navigation was not like that, particularly Navigation in Maori Pacific contexts. So he's basically saying so, navigators, the Tohungahua navigators, were basically uh, looked at signs in the water, signs in the on the land, and signs in the sky, and then navigated with those. So it's not just navigation by stars; it's a whole complex system of navigation. And stars are because they're signs in the sky; they're mm-hmm. more permanent than a lot of other signs. That's so. all. And Matthew said, so the way it works is you go, right? And the Dohunga is sort of just telling people, the captain of the boat, he's telling the captain of the boat where to go. And as you keep going, um, you you hit a place where there is, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's a cloudy night, maybe it's a cloudy week, so you can't see the stars at all. Maybe a storm blows you off course, you know? So what do you do? And he said, what the, they, the Tohunga did was basically take the fleet or the boat or the fleet whatever in great circles so it's sort of holding it's a holding pattern so it's coming in great circles around the same spot and as you go you go around go around go around and then the signs make themselves clear again and the Tohunga is like ah okay i know how to go and you set off and then you might hit another thing like that again and then you go in great circles and they're like ah i see where we need to go and you set off and sometimes you make mistakes and then you come back yeah. right you can come back to the circle that you left and so when Mato was basically saying when i when uh, his ancestors really not mine um left hawaii to come to Aotearoa, they knew where they were going right but they knew the final destination but in between were these great circles this Periods of uncertainty and not knowing where to go, and the thing, and finally you do all of the circles and then you go circles go and finally reach out the other. And what really struck me about that, I mean, there's a few things that really struck me. One was just that he said, the circling is not a problem; Mm. it's part of the system. Yeah, you know, you can't, you can't navigate by the stars. You can't navigate by waves and signs on the land if you're not circling you have to circle, right so that's part of your bigger expectation is that i will circle so when you hit a circle as a navigator it is uncertain you don't know but you just go into your you go to the circling that's part of the system that was one another thing that really struck me was um the navigator in the boat and i think um sort of designers and strategy people and managers and service mm-hmm. providers we can often follow to the spot of me outside of the system um, sort of telling people inside the system how to go you mm-hmm. know so we're slightly removed but in this case the Tuhunga sits on you know he's in the waka. so if his navigation does go wrong or whatever, or, what, I mean, if, if something terrible were to befall the boat and everyone were to drown, for instance, the tuhunga is just as much at risk of drowning as, as, as anybody else. You know, it's really, yeah. he's got, he's part of the game, eh? It's not like, you're not yeah. designing or navigating from outside, it's like, oh yeah, mate, okay, now, nah, oh, sorry, you're it now. <laughs> no, it's like, yeah, if, if we drown, we all drown. So that was another thing, and the other thing was sort of the support systems around. I mean, I, I really this metaphor just constantly blows me. Um, the other thing was the support systems. I mean, if the tohunga is busy tohungaing, or busy, busy navigating, the other people rowing, the other people sailing, there's other people cooking the kai, there's mm. other people, you know, taking care of the kids. Yeah to make to for this tohunga to be able to navigate a lot of other stuff needs to be in place yeah you know so we often think of ourselves i mean we often but the royal we civilizationally we often think of the individual hero you know blazing your way through the world yeah who is cooking the meals mate Mm. who's catching the fish you know there isn't an individual hero yeah and We have to be part of a whanau, you know, and that's what a lot of the waka were literally That It was a family. It was a whanau. That was one waka. And we have to be part of a whanau to be able to do the things that we want to do or the things that we're good at, right? The captain can't say, oh yeah, Bagarof, yeah, navigator, you know, I'm just going to take over navigating. And like, oh mate, you are stuffed. Yeah. So that was another thing. And the, another thing I thought, I mean, just really, management wisdom, I thought, was this thing about uh, continuing to navigate in circles was, I mean, when you think of it, if you don't know where you're going next, you could just sit still, right? Yeah, You could just stay in the same spot. But that is really, really, possibly, I don't know if that's what they were thinking. But when I think of it, as sort of from a modern people management perspective, it's like, that would be terrible, because people would feel like, You know, if you're a rower and you don't have rowing to do, you very quickly feel useless,
2: Mm.
1: you know, it becomes (laughs) quite a dark space for you. But as long as you're rowing or you're sailing or you're doing those things, you're still part of, you're part of the workings. Yes, And also because if circling is part of the system of navigating, I can even look at the crew and say, hey, okay, we're circling. And in keeping them busy, and they're not going to mind because it was part of the system. Yeah, yeah. So that story just kind of every time I think about it, there's a little bit more wisdom in it. I. It's such a powerful thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, every time I hear you tell it, I I hear a different thing too. Um, again, you know, we're talking about the prism, mm. um, and yeah, oh man, like one of the things that that strikes me. So um, yeah, like. You know, like, so for example, this podcast, like, it's about um, impact sessions. It's about, like, Mm -hmm. you know, what are the um, tools, trips, and tricks that, like, social innovators use Mm. to, like, make and drive what they're doing. Mm. Um, And, yeah, like, for me, like, again, what I love about the navigating metaphor as opposed to the destination metaphor is that... um, Yeah, like, again, like, I mean, yeah, like, I'm forced to ask, like, what's essential? Mm. And then also, um, you know, there's what's essential. And then also, like, I I feel like if you're building something, a community, um, a network, all of those things, there are, like, Mm. um, or impact, like, there's tasks that you can do towards that, the aims of that, where every so often, the impact is not direct. Mm -hmm. you know um so you know like being a running a small business um for me at the moment that's creating a whole bunch of content and you know um the practice of that is is the circling there's going to be there's going to be times you know in the years to come where like there's going to be this like um it was almost going to be like an oversized return on the thing. But the practice now of Mm -hmm. just, this is what it takes. or this, this is, yeah, this is, this is the task that puts me in the walker of social entrepreneurship. This is the work that puts me, um, yeah, on this trajectory. Um, Mm. and yeah, when, and I, there's almost like the sense of like, um, yeah sort of reflecting on the spot like um you know connectedness to the mission but also detachment and i think it's um gary v he talks about um micro speed macro patience so like oh, yeah. that's so interesting like in your day to day like you do everything you can towards your big goal but in the macro in the years and years and years of your life like you're patient you're patient actually to that ultimate outcome um Thanks. so for him, like he wants to own you know an American football team um so he's patient with that, but in terms of the actions that gets him there like he's he sees himself as like a hustler mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. someone who um and that's sort of like when and that's i think yeah, like this metaphor like sort of plays into that in that mm-hmm. if you're not doing the things that are like essential to you know, navigating, um, rowing, cooking, mm, mm. um, caring, um, steering, um, then yeah, that sense of like uselessness or aimlessness comes in. Yep, yep, yep. But that's also part of the work is finding out what is worth doing, yeah. what is essential. Yep. Um and yeah, oh man, mm. I just I love that metaphor. Which I, I really think, love that. Yeah, mm yeah um I know we didn't like dive too much into that one, but I think it also like um i feel like it's a good segue um into into like the expectations of like developing something um from like you know to impact um so yeah, I think it would be awesome, yeah, to hear your your watermelon gardening story um, <laughs> and some of the learnings from the <laughs> the uh, the Pamir, Pamir Library. Oh yep.
1: Yeah. oh totally. So it's it's really funny. I've been I've been writing and talking so much about the planting watermelons and getting butternut squash, and my wife is like, y- "You're really stretching that story out. Eh? You're really milking that story." Out. I'm like, "It makes so much sense." Yeah. So. Um,
0: I'm happy to oblige. Well, um.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. No, I, it, that's really, really interesting. So, the immediate story was basically a few months ago, I put in watermelon seeds. It was meant as a bit of a surprise for my wife who loves watermelons. <clears throat> so, we had a packet. It says watermelons in the damn packet. And so, <laughs> I put in the seeds and um, waited. And things grew, right? things grew out of it and then yeah she got excited and then she's like what did you put there like finally had to tell us like watermelons but anyway what happened was where the fruits came we'd realized that there were two different plants and that's like all i'd planted was watermelons but they were two different the plants look different and we're like oh never i've never actually seen a watermelon plant so maybe but as the fruit started coming out some of them were clearly watermelons one of two of them, two plants, I think. The other three or four plants were clearly not watermelons. <laughs> well, that was the weirdest shape watermelon ever. And as it grew up, it grew more and more. We realized it's butternut squash. And that was the thing about, you know, planted watermelons, I've got butternut squash. And the thing that that reminded me of was, this was back in 2013. I was at Auckland Libraries, and we were setting up maker spaces. And I think possibly as some of us, um, definitely my own thinking at the time was quite, um, potentially quite mechanistic Mm. in the sense of, you know, you have a input, you have a process and you have an output, right? And if Mm -hmm. the output's not what you wanted, then there's something wrong with the input or something wrong with the process, right? And then of course, Panmure library happened. So Panmure library would set up the first um, makerspace, a central city library. And then my next part of my job was to set up a couple more, uh, to move south, basically.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, Panmere was one, and I think, uh, Mangadee East Library was the other one, I can't remember quite. but Panmere is where the big thing happened. So, Panmere Library went to them and said, hey, make a space, all of this stuff. They're like, yeah, they're great. But um, we're not really interested in your 3D printers and your robotic stuff. What our community really wants is a recording room, mm-hmm. you know, sort of to be able to record music. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay, I can do this. So Ports of Auckland gave us a bunch of like 10, I think, 10 old computers, oldish, are still working well. We put um, Ubuntu Linux on them and um, bought some microphones. Jaco, you know, Jaco Jaco. Yeah, Jacko. yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. so they yeah. gave us gave us a bunch of uh, modems and programmed it so it could connect into the library Wi-Fi. So all of that is set up, right? And the room used to be the old local history room, but turn it into the makerspace. And I was, I mean, all of this energy and people were clearly energized, but I was dreaming of, I was dreaming really. And in my dreams it was going to be, oh yep, the kids would come in, they'd record the music, maybe we'll put on YouTube because we had the internet Wi-Fi. And while you can't, it's hard to get the kids around to do a physical dance off or a sing off, say with Mangali East. We'll put it up on YouTube and we'll have a, you know, a virtual sing-off and a virtual dance-off. I mean, like, eyes were <laughs> popping. And the whole thing was around engagement, right? I mean, mm-hmm. in our thinking, technology was never the thing. The thing around the maker spaces was around um, sort of maker rather than consumer culture.
2: Yeah.
1: Like, and working with young people and engaging young people in a yeah. different way. So the technology of it was not the main focus ever anyway. And then what happened was the kids loved the space, absolutely loved the space. They were like, when's it gonna open, when's it gonna open, finally open, and they went in, they used it. And particularly a couple of bunches of, um, a couple of groups of girls I remember, and they would be in there every day after school, practicing their music, singing it, singing it together, um, trying out da da da. I was like, I was getting pretty excited. And finally they recorded it and they recorded it and then they listened to it and then they deleted the file. <laughs> and I was like, what no. the, you know, I could not process. And um, I talked to the, I think she was a youth librarian at the time, I can't remember what her role was. And talked to her, and basically what it was, was Fakama. They, one, they didn't really want other people to, they weren't doing it for other people. They were a bit mm-hmm. shy about it. I think and that comes from Maori and Pacific cultures as well, a bit careful about standing up. You know? And um, also they were just doing it for themselves. That was the point. And I was really, I mean, from a mechanistic sort of outcomes perspective, that was shit. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> this is the thing we planned towards. This is the thing we designed towards. And it's, it's quote unquote, it's a failure, right? And then Katie who was the manager of Pamela library. I think she might still be at the time. Um, Katie sort of, around the time, pointed me to a bunch of furniture that was lying in the back room. A few pieces of furniture that had been tagged with Sharpie and just sort of random tagging a bit of graffiti. And they were waiting to be cleaned basically because what the library does is when something's tagged, they take it off and get it cleaned. And she looks at it and says, um, you know, that pile of furniture that's a six week pile. I think she the six weeks. Mm. I was like, Oh yeah. Then I mean, okay. <laughs> Why are you telling me this? I'm the 3D printer guy, man. Why are you telling me this? Mm-hmm. And then she said, before the makerspace, that would have been a one or two week pile. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, well, okay. And then basically again talking with the youth librarian i didn't have very much directly to do with the kids but uh, talking to the librarians there, they basically said what seemed to be happening was the kids loved the space so one they were using the space a lot so one they were really chuffed about having a space especially for youth
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know not and a lot of libraries have that so there's this teen space but the teen space is usually taken over by preteens
2: mm-hmm.
1: so teens yeah. think of themselves as adults often not and preteens are the ones who want to be teens. But these kids really loved the space that was for them. And partly it was there being more after school time was being more gainfully employed mm-hmm. in recording stuff and playing with technology. And the other was they were just getting a whole lot more respect for the library space itself. And they had much an improved um, sort of experience with the staff as well. And you know, just, they knew staff by name, staff knew them by name. Oh, cool, yeah. And that, it was around that time that really, really challenged my thinking around that mechanistic model of you know input process output. Yeah. And then, but the thing is, models are really, really useful, you know, to sort of think through, particularly when you're designing. I mean, going back to the navigation story, um, when you think about oh i'm going to be going in circles mm-hmm. that's really useful to hold in your head as a model because then yeah. you're not hitting a circle and going like what do i do now yeah yeah just yeah. roll into the in circles so around the time i think someone talked to me about gardening i can't remember what it was but basically i ended up getting quite interested in gardening because you still have a similar Input, process, output. Right? You put in yeah. the seed, and then process happens, and then you get the fruits. But gardening is a lot more. I mean, massively more respectful of conditions. Yeah. I can't. I can't control the weather. Forget about controlling the climate. I can't even control the weather. Um, soil that you use in one. I mean, the same soil works really well one year. Next year. I mean, it's happened with our garden this year. It's like last year we went crazy with chilies, in exactly the same spot we planted chilies again, yeah. And it's been a record record hot summer as well, you know. Yeah. So there's there's really limited control over that. And again, that's part of your thinking. I mean, a gardener doesn't. I mean, you would get upset. You planted cauliflowers and you didn't get cauliflowers. So. But, but you're not. You're If you're anything of a decent gardener, you're quite aware that that's a real possibility.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, it's not just machinery that should happen. Yeah, so that whole thing of, um, you know, how we go towards outcomes and sort of designing towards outcomes and yes, it's not that we shouldn't design towards outcomes, but you're not always gonna get at my conditions. What is yeah. the idea of conditions? What are the conditions you're designing in? And um, I mean, even, I mean, the kind of design lessons I've been learning from gardening, it's, man, it's all over the place, it's amazing. So one, one of them, for instance, is last year we put in tomatoes and we put in an avocado,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? We harvested tomatoes in about six months, I think. And the avocado is still it's going. It's gonna be seven years before we get a harvest yeah (laughs) right so even when you think of a project or you think of a thing that you're designing is it an avocado is it a tomato yeah you know what's its natural life and in a mechanistic view you just don't have that access to that do you level of subtlety yeah
0: and then and do you find too like and this is the place i'm getting to is um, so, like my background in education. I've like mm-hmm. talked about it a little bit on the podcast before. But when you're first starting out, like, the, I think I feel like the mechanistic view is you're really concerned about the um, the methods and the frameworks and the, and the tools that you use. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you like develop a, I don't know what you know, a more organic approach, mm-hmm. you you tend to um, lean towards like the mindset, the mindset that comes out of it, the intention that goes behind it. Um, a lot of the time now, and, and you probably find this, like, I'm, I design, uh, I, I feel like before, like I was designing, yeah, for outcomes. Mm. Now I'm designing for moments. Mm. Like mm. what moments yeah, man. like are going to shift the mood? Like what moments are going to shift like you know, people's um, yeah, drive Mm, mm. you know, like um, sensibility, like what moments are going to get rid of assumptions which ones are going to build hope Mm -hmm. which ones are going to like, you know deliver insight Mm -hmm. Um, and so and when you talk, yeah, and like gardening is one of those It's especially like the circling thing like I've started um, at our place, like because of everything that's going on and Mm. um, I did it for two weeks and um I've seen some people like use cardboard to kill weeds in that. Mm-hmm. Um but no access to like compost. So I was like, oh, I'll mm-hmm. use a couple layers of newspaper. Garden looked great for like a week, it rained and then the weeds just like shot through it. And I was like, okay, there's a lesson, lesson learned. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's um and I think also when you when you obviously when you write proposals like having an outcome that's something intangible, like, you know problem-solving skills or like all those mm, soft mm. things those intangible emotional maybe leaning stuff um it can be hard to get a proposal over the line mm. But i feel like when you or i believe really that like when you design for that type of outcome mm. then you can be more present to the butternut yeah. Yeah, yeah. coming from the watermelon
1: packet <laughs> <laughs> you know watermelon, that's, yeah yeah and um i think no, I suddenly lost my train. I suddenly looked out and saw my cauliflower and lost my train, I thought. Yeah, uh, so <laughs> no, I think that's right, I eh? Sort of, um, the kind of, I think we're still deciding for outcomes in a sense. Mm-hmm.
2: You
1: know, hope is an outcome. Yeah. It's not, it's, but. Um,
0: but you're released looks, from it like looking yeah. like a, a thing, specifically. Yeah, you know you have i feel like you you end up with a menu you know like as opposed to like a dish you know like we're gonna follow this recipe versus like um yeah we're gonna use these ingredients it gives the same like yeah i love it when my wife goes oh what are we gonna have for dinner there's nothing and we end up with like you know a curry and a really you know like and it's just like what like where did that come from or like you know there's a there's a pasta bake now all of a sudden <laughs> like you know or a quiche like it's just like yeah um mm, mm. So yeah i mean there's so many yeah i oh, mean i love this um we yeah we've been going for close to an hour um i was just wondering cuz um i forgot on those questions but there's like three questions i want to just round off. Oh, yep. I, I think yes. it's three um so we'll we'll start with them and then hopefully they they land um So, so first one is um, a book or author that's um, inspiring or keeps inspiring you.
1: Um, Mm. Yeah. Oh, I have three. Eh.
0: Okay, (laughs) let's go for it.
1: So, actually, I wonder if I can show you the covers. Is this? Yeah. Let's go right now. Where are they? My three books. Oh, yeah.
2: Just uh, no one
1: sorry, Andy, I'll be right back.
0: All good. <laughs> a little intermission.
1: Oh yep, I found it.
0: That's great. Uh, your Bluetooth headphones are still connected, but um
1: yeah, no, I love Bluetooth. <laughs> so I'll go uh, sort of chronologically actually, okay, so this is the first one. Can you see it Laurie Baker?
0: Laurie Baker, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's not a book written by him. It's a book about his work. So Laurie Baker was English, moved to India, North India sometime, I oh, not know, sometime around Gandhi's time, I think. So sort of early, early post-independence and sort of fell in love with the land and the people and the state. And Laurie Baker was an architect. And this book's called, it's by Gautam Bhatia. It's life works and writings. And Laurie... Laurie was an architect and he, way before this was remotely cool, actually it was quite uncool. He would talk about things like building with the land. So he would try to disturb the land as little as possible in this building. And he would talk about getting um, materials for building as close as possible from the nearest point. So this was like in the 60s and 70s before it was like a big thing. 50s and 60s, I think, and um, (laughs) my favourite Laurie story is literally this. Um, He was, towards the end of his life, the Prime Minister's office, they were going to give him a national award, I can't remember what the award was, so the Prime Minister's office called him. So Laurie lived in Kerala, which is in the southwest of India, it's a state in the southwest of India, and Laurie did institutional buildings, but also he built cheaply for people, for normal people, right? It wasn't and he also did a little sort of innovations like trying to, I think it's the University of Truandrum where there's no air conditioning in South India, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But it's sort of actually naturally cooled and using systems like lattice work. So instead of having windows, having lattices. So air is let in, but it still maintains privacy because from outside you can't see in, okay. you know, stuff like that. So a lot of traditional work, he sort of incorporated at the end yep yeah. so towards the end of his life he's been given an award because it's quite a big deal by then and the prime minister's office called him and said hey so we'd like to give you this award He's like oh sweet okay thank you uh, this is my address please mail it to me please post it to me they're like oh, no 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 we need you to come to delhi he's like oh i can't it's like a 3 day trip by train right it's a 72 hour trip by train i can't i can't make that they said like, oh no no we'll we'll fly you. We'll pay for the flight. We'll fly you up and down. And then Laurie goes, oh, so how much would that cost? How much is that going to cost you? And they're like, oh, about 10,000 rupees. And it's like, actually, if you just give me the 10,000 rupees, I can build three houses. (laughs) And that's like seminal Laurie. It's sort of that
2: Mm.
1: a designer, but sort of who thinks sort of with the land as an architect. So that's one. The second one, slightly more controversial. <laughs> so it's this. It's mounting on Guerrilla warfare. Awesome. So this was written. Um, this is before he went completely crazy, evil, I guess. But um, it was written as response to criticism from some sort of the Komintang generals, the mainstream army, who were based. And this was when they were fighting the Japanese imperial army pushing them out of mainland China. Yeah, so what's really cool about this one particularly is sort of that thinking about um, how things really work, not how they've always worked in the past, but how they can work. And often when we think of guerrilla, we talk about as guerrilla tactics. Mm. This is actually a book on guerrilla strategy. It's, It's a big picture. And how do you, and when you think of it, I mean, um books like Lean, what is that called? Lean Startup have talked about it as yeah. as sort of um, entrepreneurship being this state of extreme uncertainty. Right? Um yeah, here's another state of extreme uncertainty with you you have no resources. Yeah. Wow. No, all of your resources are literally brought from the land or stolen from the enemy. How do you do that? So there's some really good thinking in there. And the third one is sort of a farming one. It's called The One-Straw Revolution. It's uh, Masanobu right, yeah. Fukuoka. Yeah, he, Fukuoka was an engineer, I think, and then he turned in, turned to farming and he started something called um, what he calls uh, no-till farming. It's called no-till. Uh,
0: no-till. I, th- I thought I heard that name. Uh,
1: no-till no, is what the one no, they no use. No-dig,
0: yeah.
1: no? Not no-dig, it's like, oh, actually I'm going talk about this. Do nothing farming.
0: Uh, okay, yeah, yeah.
1: So again, it's not it's not so much that's not work. It's, you do a lot of stuff, but it's farming with the rhythms of nature. Yeah. Um I had a bit of a play. They talk about him also as one of the one of the early fathers of permaculture, the permaculture. Uh, okay,
0: yes, yeah, mm. yeah.
1: Yeah, those are probably my top three. i eh? Sorry. No, that's all
0: good, man. No, no, that's good. um, Because I've forgotten my my questions. Um, And I guess like maybe the last one, which I used, which is just my last question. um, You already mentioned your PhD. um, So I usually ask, you know, what are you up to? Um, But uh, where can people find you? How can people connect? Um, Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, It depends on what you want to connect for. (laughs) For the slightly more thoughtful, serious stuff, I'm on LinkedIn, Maroc Jacob, easy to find. Um if you want to hear me talking, basically swearing a lot and talking about wine and coffee, uh I'm on Twitter, happy to connect yeah. there as well. But also I'm you know, I'm just just at work, Jacob at aucklandcouncil.govt.nz. Awesome, yeah. I'm always happy to have conversations. I eh? yeah.
0: Uh I mean uh, even I this can, one, I can I've can learned be- so much. Yeah, I can vouch for it. Like um <laughs> yeah Yeah. we always we always have a good time man um i I gotta get back to kids um thank you so much thank you so much for your time and for yeah sharing on um yeah three perspectives on like just Mm. i want to say managing uncertainty Mm. um Mm. yeah and yeah i just yeah i just love that you keep keep pushing into that and um, i've learned so much from you and i know that um i got about on anchor where i use this i've got about six people in my audience so the rest of us um yeah we're gonna enjoy this too cheers
1: <laughs> <laughs> andy thank you that was really bye fun man. see you mate
0: Right. Hey again this is andy signing off um i really hope you enjoyed that that podcast um please do reach out to baruch he's a very um yeah he's a wealth of knowledge and someone who is really good to have in your corner Um, And the reason, I hope you can find, yeah, the reason I thought that was super powerful um, to have on this episode, on this podcast at this time, is that even after, you know, the coronavirus, we're going to need ways to connect with people. We're going to need ways to make sure they feel safe. And if you're involved in impact work, that's some of the best work that you can do, is to get on their level and for them to get on yours and to have empathy. Um, So with that, we're signing off. Till next time. See ya. Bye.